Awesome. Good morning. My name is Justin Wolf, and I serve as one of the elders here at Stonebridge Bible Church. And this morning, I have the privilege to open God's Word with you all. And, and uh, recently, in a personal study with some men on Tuesday nights, I've started working through the Sermon on the Mount. And, and in preparation for teaching this morning, I actually was planning on teaching on a different passage. And I was so personally convicted and challenged by God's Word in this study over the last several weeks that I, I made a little bit of a left turn, and we're going to unpack the Sermon on the Mount collectively together. In addition to that, I, I do need to thank, thank my father. Um, over uh, roughly about two years ago, he discipled me through the Sermon on the Mount. And so me being up here, I am a product of what discipleship looks like, which is wildly important as we dive into this the, the longest sermon of Jesus Christ recorded in the book of Matthew in one sitting. Um, and so as we dive in, allow me to read Matthew 5, 1 through 12. We're going to just focus on three verses, verses 3, 4, uh, yeah, verses 3, 4, and 5, the first of the three Beatitudes. But allow me to read this over us. I will pray, and then we will dive in. Picking up Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account for me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me, Father God, we are grateful for your word. Lord, I am just so thankful that our entire church body can be together in a single service, worshiping you collectively, um, walking through your word, Father God, being encouraged even by the children up here who love you. Thank you, Father, that your gift of the Holy Spirit is in all of us who call on you as Savior, and I pray that he would guide us through your word accurately and intentionally. Pray, Lord, for the souls of the men that are in this room, men and women and children, Father God, that there are one, you're one of two people, Lord, and I pray for those who don't know Christ that they would come to a saving knowledge of him even today. And those who are in Christ, may they be encouraged and refreshed by this message, this sermon of Jesus that he gave that is recorded in the book of Matthew. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In preparation for diving deep, I want to take a little bit of time 
that's an understatement. I want to take a good deal of time working through the context of this passage. I want to deal with a little bit of who Matthew was, his calling as a disciple, Jesus's message, and then just the context of the people during that period of time that were hearing the message. And to do that, it's going to take a little bit of time. So I just want you to bear with me as we walk through this. Um, in, in Western culture, specifically in, in America, there's this pendulum that swings between emotion and theology. And I know some of you feel this. Um, we are willing to separate emotion from theology. And as this pendulum swings, we normally tend to go one way or the other. Right? We will move all the way over to emotion at the expense of accurate biblical teaching and theology, or conversely, we become so staunch theologically that we separate emotion from God's word. And so this morning, as we walk through the context, what I want you to do is kind of stay in the middle of the road, even though I'm sure that makes some of you very uncomfortable this morning. Okay, because sometimes we can read scripture so prescriptively that we forget it's real people in a real period of time that are dealing with real issues and specific to this context, Jews who are really awaiting a king who would come, the Messiah, the one to come. And we can read this so prescriptively that, that we miss out on that emotion. These are people who are living in the midst of oppression by a foreign government that has come in, instituted their rule of law and taxation on a group of people who are awaiting a Messiah to come, overthrow that government and place them back in rule. And, and I would venture to guess that in this room, 95, if not 99% of us cannot relate to that predicament at all. And, and I want you to understand what that would be like emotionally when you're hearing this message delivered by Jesus Christ, who has started doing some miracles, and now you have this radical message that is coming from Jesus while you're awaiting a king to come overthrow Rome. That's deep. That's emotional, right? We need to kind of stay in the middle of the lane. The author of this letter, as it is called, is Matthew. In other gospels, he's referred to as Levi, son of Alphaeus. You see, Matthew was a Jew living during this occupation of Rome. And most of us would know Matthew's job was being a tax collector, in other words, Matthew, who was a Jew, was employed by the foreign entity that came in, overtook their people, and he was charged to go uh, uh, gather tax money from his own people. In other words, Matthew, in the eyes of his fellow Jews, was a traitor. And you see, Jesus went to Matthew's quote-unquote tax office and called him directly. You see, Jesus sought Matthew out, though his fellow citizens would refer to him as an enemy of the state or as a traitor. And, and, and that conversion is recognized in Mark 2 and in Luke 5 and then in Matthew 9 as well later after the Sermon on the Mount. I would encourage you to go look at it, but Jesus sought him out, though the general public would view him as a traitor. 
that matters contextually when we're reading this because there's two audiences. There's an audience that was there when Jesus actually delivered the message, and then there's an audience who, including us, who is reading and studying this letter written by Matthew. A few years ago, Dr. Easley, when Stonebridge Bible Church with both Wayne and him, put, God put on their hearts for them to do a study working through each book of the Bible. And Dr. E took one book per week for two years working through a summary message on each book of the Bible. And if you are not here, I would encourage you to go to our website and download those messages. If you are doing a book study, there are wonderful summaries contextually about the authorship of these books, the context of these books, the audience of these books. And, and, and uh, maybe a year and a half in, Dr. E got to the book of Matthew. And when he gave that sermon, I wrote in the top of the letter that Matthew wrote, I wrote a quote by him that he gave in that sermon. And this is what he said, quote, Matthew is a book by a Jew, about a Jew, for the Jews. That gives us context about this letter, right? Which we've kind of started to already unpack. What Dr. E was saying is, Matthew is a book by a Jew. Matthew wrote it about a Jew, Jesus Christ, with the general audience and recipients of this letter being Jews. So their context of knowing the law is a little bit different than most of us probably in this room. You see, Matthew's writing was to focus on King Jesus, his life, his salvation, and the kingdom of which Matthew refers to as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Matthew, his letter, has the most recordings of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, and knowing his audience is Jews, Matthew also quotes the Old Testament law and prophets more than any other writer, author, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the book of the Bible. And, and the last time Johnny spoke, he, Johnny Artavanis, he made a joke about how Matthew starts out his letter with a genealogy. And he said, if we're doing a yearly uh, read through the Bible um, um, study, that's one of those weeks we just kind of gloss over, right? Cheat day is what he said. But the reality is knowing the audience, Matthew starts with the genealogy specifically because Matthew is out to prove that the Messiah the, G- the Jews are waiting for is in fact this Jesus, the one that Moses said back in Genesis 3.15 would come and crush the head of the serpent that we sang about this morning. Right? That, that Wayne mentioned in the battle hymn of the Republic. That is what Matthew's intention was as he's writing to this specific audience who are Jews who knew the law. That is part of this context. And as we dive in to the Beatitudes, I want to look at the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount a little bit. And and I know this has taken a little bit to get in there, but this is really important because we will then understand who the audience is before Jesus on this mountain. So if you could, flip back one page to Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in verse 17, because we've got to understand what Jesus' original message is prior to this Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus has a simple message that is wildly profound. From the time that Jesus began to preach, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And you know, what's crazy is this is not a new message. This is the exact message that John the Baptist, the one who would go before, delivered. And Matthew records it in Matthew 3, verse 2, with the exact same sentence, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, Jesus Christ preached a message of repentance from the very beginning prior to getting into the Sermon on the Mount and the section we're specifically going to study, the B attitudes. That in and of itself is the message of the gospel. The one greater, the seed of old, was here to bring forgiveness through his obedience to the Father and our repentance. And quite honestly, even today, this is an offensive message. Because in a lot of churches, the the concept of repentance is not brought up. In fact, we shy away from often using the term sin. Right? We have a lot of country songs that say, most people are good. We're all doing great. We're having a good time. Right? Jesus' message is wildly different. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Move two verses forward with me into verse 19. And Jesus says this. He's walking about the Sea of Galilee. He's about to start calling his disciples. And he says this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He starts with a message of repentance, and then he goes to these specific men and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. His, his specific message to these men was, follow me. And, and it's really important to understand the calling of a believer is greater than any vocation you may have today. You see, Jesus Christ was reframing their thinking because these are fishers, fishermen fishing for fish. Right? And Jesus reframes it and says, I want you to be fishers of the souls of men. Right? He reframes their thinking in their calling. And this is another study in and of itself, but not what we're going to focus on this morning. Jump a couple more verses and we're going to camp on verse 23 through 25 very quickly. Verse 23, and Jesus was going about in all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Did you see Jesus was doing, as I see, Jesus was doing four specific things in verse 23. He was going about all of Galilee. He was teaching in the synagogues. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he was healing every kind of sickness and disease. And why did the crowd follow him? Because they wanted him to heal them. Juxtapose this against the call of the disciples where he's preaching this message of repentance and he says, follow me. And what did they immediately do? They followed him. Jump forward a couple more verses. Chapter 5, we're now in verse 2. Matthew records this about Jesus. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying... This multitude is following him to be healed, 
and he begins to teach them. Are you tracking with me on this first bookend? This also informs us of three groups of people. Now, quite honestly, where, where I'm at in my study, I'm grouping them in three groups, okay? You may have more, but for the sake of what we're doing this morning, I see three groups of people. First of all, we have the disciples who were at the beginning of their training plan with Jesus. They are in the audience for this message. Second, we have those who want to be healed, Right? We have those who are sick and in need of a miracle of healing, the heavy or weary, the heavy laden or weary. And then we have a general multitude, which will include Jews, Gentiles, and more than likely the religious pious of that time because he was going about in the synagogues. Right? So, so you've got three groups of people that are following Jesus before he begins to teach. So, so let me set the stage. Jesus walks up the mountain. The crowd follows him. The teacher sits, right? I can't go any lower. I might not be able to get back up. The teacher sits. His message is directed to the disciples in preparation for their future ministry. And you have this, this, these, onlooker, these onlookers who had anticipated healing for themselves, a friend, or a family member. And then you have these religious leaders who more than likely will in the future be challenging Jesus' message because he declares himself the Messiah, the one to come. Okay? Good with setup? Okay, good. Not yet. We're not quite there. Flip forward to chapter 7. Flip forward to chapter 7. Turn all the way to the end. I want to look at these two bookends, and I have to confess, I never noticed these until my father walked me through these. So I've, I've got to give credit where credit's due, okay? Chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Let me read this to you. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So here's a simple observation. A large majority of these people were following Jesus because they wanted to be healed. And by the time Jesus was done teaching, they were amazed at his teaching. Also, in the Sermon on the Mount, there is no recorded miracle of healing and there is no teaching on healing or the gift of healing. These people followed Jesus because they wanted themselves, a friend or a family member to be healed, or maybe they just wanted to be entertained. By the time Jesus finished, they were amazed at his teaching. Now, it's important to understand there's two schools of thought on this specific Sermon on the Mount. You see, sometimes Matthew doesn't necessarily write in chronological order. Okay, so there's two schools of thought. One is that this is an aggregation of multiple messages given by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's another school of thought that says this would be a single sitting where Jesus is teaching this entire message at one point in time. Where I'm at in my study, I view this as a single message by Jesus Christ 
But y'all go do your own deep dive on that and arrive at some conclusion, okay? But this is what we need to understand. People were following Jesus other than the disciples to be healed. And by the time he was done teaching them, they were amazed by his teaching. And not only were they just amazed by his teaching, because they viewed him as greater than a scribe. He was not reading God's word, but rather they viewed him as the author of God's word. They put him on the same pedestal as the authors, quote unquote, of the Old Testament and the prophets. Can we sit and rest in that for a minute? Can you visualize this context? And quite honestly, if we personalize that, maybe you can relate with someone in the crowd, right? Maybe, maybe you're here this morning as we unpack this passage and, and you're ill, you're sick. You, you have a heavy heart. You are weary, but you don't know Christ and you view him as a genie in a bottle, and, and you, you live in this if-then theology, if the Lord fill in the blank does this, then I will believe in him. Maybe you're like the religious pious and you have a stony heart that's calloused to the gospel and you still need your stony heart made flesh. Maybe you've never heard the gospel. I'll be quite frank, you will hear it today and, and the call of Jesus is to respond to it, and better yet and more encouraging, maybe you are a disciple here today. And maybe you are going to be encouraged, reminded, and refreshed by God's message to his disciples so that when you walk out of here, you are renewed to go live for Jesus Christ throughout the week. I want us to be amazed by God's word. Okay, we are now going to jump into the Beatitudes. So let's go back to chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 3. We are going to look at verses 3, 4, and 5. And I am going to go fairly quick through this. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle or meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Along with my study of the Sermon on the Mount on Tuesday night with these men that I've been meeting with and we've been working through it together, I've been working through a book by an author named A.W. Pink, Arthur W. Pink. I'm, I'm hoping some of you know this name. If you don't, he has written a book called The Sovereignty of God, which is a must read. You all need to get that book and read it. But he's got a two volume series on the Sermon on the Mount and, and I've been working through it and he, he depicts Jesus's quote unquote beatitudes, his, his original message this way. He says this, Christ began not, my, not by pronouncing maledictions on the wicked, but benedictions on his own people. It was not to the multitude at large that the Redeemer first spoke, but to the elect who had a special claim upon him as given by the Father's love to him. You see, Jesus Christ starts with a countercultural message that is a secret hidden to the unregenerate. He begins by explaining the outcome and the blessing he gives to those who are found in him. And what's really, what's really interesting about this as you study it, of the first 12 verses, the first 10 are direct quotes of Jesus Christ. And in those 10 verses, Jesus uses the word blessed nine times 
which means it's probably important and we should spend some time to kind of understand exactly what that word means because this is not only a countercultural message to the secular world, but this is a countercultural message to those who teach a works-based or prosperity gospel of heresy. This matters today. You see, in Greek, the word blessed is transliterated makarios. It means supremely blessed by extension, fortunate, well-off, or happy. And I'm sure we've all heard sermons where we utilize that term happy, and oftentimes we don't understand the why behind the happy. Right? And so, so I want to short-circuit a definition for you on blessed so that we can move through these beatitudes, but we have to understand what this word blessed means What Jesus Christ is saying is that all believers are blessed because we find full satisfaction through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone in all things. More succinctly, in stealing a quote from my father, Wayne, he always taught us growing up that being blessed means that we are indwelt by God and find full satisfaction in him alone. We are supremely blessed. We are fortunate and well off. We are happy because Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You see, Jesus Christ came to this earth fully God and fully man out of obedience to the Father to take my sin and your sin upon himself, which put him on the cross, which then killed him. He was buried to prove his death. He was resurrected on the third day. He now sits at the right hand of the Father where he justifies me and declares me righteous before God, the creator and owner of all things. And as Michael easily always says, it is the easiest transaction in history because all we have to do is believe. And as Johnny Artavanis said two, the, two times ago when he preached, congratulations, right? He defined blessed as congratulations. So as we dive in, let me ask you this rhetorical question. Do you find full satisfaction in all things through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone? Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there or a sin no more hath dominion for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So if believers are blessed because we are indwelt by God and find full satisfaction in him alone, what characteristics should we exude to those whom we are around? I want us to take a look at this list of beatitudes, and I contend it's an outline of salvation and the characteristics of believers that we all should have. 
And now that we've defined what blessed is, we need to define these descriptive attributes of believers by way of a salvation message. And so I want to just show you kind of how I've outlined these Beatitudes, and I've worked with the men on Tuesday night with this. Now, it's important to understand when you're studying God's word, originally the chapter numbers and the verse numbers were not there, right? And so, so as you study, I encourage you, read the passages over and over. Try and outline, draw similarities. You need to color in your Bible. Do it. Draw connections, but this is how I've, I've broken it out. It is this process that takes place in a believer's life, in my opinion, and where I'm at in my study. You look at the first three Beatitudes, and it is this call of salvation and transformation that takes place in the heart. The next six is this process of sanctification where once you are indwelt by God and you are indwelt by God and all of these things are taking place, you then become more like Christ daily. And then we have this promise of glorification that takes place in verse 12 where we are guaranteed a reward in heaven. And as Jesus Christ says in verse 12, that reward is great. And so this is what we're going to work off of. I've set it up this way in the event that Johnny and the elders ever let me teach again, because maybe we can jump back into the Beatitudes. But this morning, I want to work through verses 3, 4, and 5 collectively. We've defined the word blessed, but it's really important for us to understand the tense of the word blessed. So I'm going to nerd out a little bit and bear with me, but this word blessed is an adjectival noun. Wasn't sure what that was, had to look it up and wasn't even sure how to pronounce it. But it is an adjectival noun, which means it functions as a noun, even though it's an adjective, and it qualifies another noun. Every one of the Beatitudes uses this term blessed as an adjectival noun in Greek. In other words, if we look at verse 3, the poor in spirit, you cannot separate the concept of being blessed from being poor in spirit. They are synonymous and they work together. So if you are indwelt by God and find full satisfaction in him, you are poor in spirit. Conversely, if you are poor in spirit, you, you are indwelt by God and find full satisfaction in him alone. They are inseparable. Two nouns. Tracking with me? Okay, awesome. Let's define these words. Poor, what does it mean to be poor? It's a beggar, it's a pauper, it's someone who is distressed, it's someone who recognizes they have need. If we look at the word spirit, transliterated in Greek, it's pneuma. It's the air that we breathe by way of analogy. Figuratively, it's the rational soul. It's our vital principles. It's our emotions. It's our minds. A similar concept used in the New Testament is the heart. It's a very similar concept to the heart. It's our whole being. And just to put an end to prosperity gospel, this has nothing to do with financial prosperity at all. It has nothing to do with financial success or distress. That is not what Jesus Christ is talking about. Pink says it this way. There is no virtue and often no disgrace in financial poverty as such. Nor does it of itself produce humility of heart. For anyone who has any real acquaintance with both classes soon discovers there is just as much pride in the indigent as there is in the opulent. Jesus Christ is not guaranteeing or promising financial success. 
Jesus is guaranteeing that you are indwelt by the Spirit of God and you will find full satisfaction in him alone. The poor in spirit understand their valuelessness before a perfect and holy God. The poor in spirit understand their spiritual bankruptcy, worthlessness with no end in sight and no way to reconcile their state. The poor in spirit understand that they have no way in and of themselves to make, earn, or create a valuable spirit. The poor in spirit take a self-evaluation. As Paul communicates in Romans, quoting a variety of psalms, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And yet the poor in spirit are blessed. Because they are indwelt by God and find full satisfaction in him alone. In addition, Christ is guaranteeing the promise of a reward. You see, distressed in your whole being, knowing no value in and of yourselves, God promises you an inheritance. The destitute in spirit inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the best news. God's grace is free. You see, we could not afford this great salvation. And I, I want us to understand this wordplay. You have on one hand the poor, right? And on the other hand, you have an inheritance. Well, how do you get an inheritance? You're either born or adopted into the family, which means that that kingdom of heaven we inherit is gifted to us. And I don't want you to lose sight of the crowd. At least two of these three groups that I previously outlined feel the desperation in life. You see, the, the sick and lame understand being physically bankrupt, but our Lord and Savior is delivering a spiritual message of hope. And the question, church, we need to ask ourselves is, do we have a high view of ourselves and a low view of God? Or have you recognized your wretchedness before a perfect and holy God and, and cried out as Paul did, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's move on to verse four. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Well, what does it mean to mourn? It means to grieve by way of feeling or action, to wail or to lament. <clears throat> and I want to personalize this mourning a little bit because in our church, there have been many that have mourned the loss of loved ones. Husbands and wives, children worse yet, there are many in our midst who have had multiple miscarriages over the last year. And I, and, and I might not know how to personalize this for you, and I don't want to pretend I understand this pain and feeling, but it is a feeling of utter desperation and despair. Maybe you're the one that brought mourning on your loved ones. Maybe you're a child in here that has rebelled against your parents or the Lord and, and has have brought this mourning upon your parents. 
Maybe in a marriage, you're a spouse that has sinned egregiously and brought mourning inside your home or your family. I don't, I don't want to sit here, but I want us to remember that feeling because the Lord Jesus Christ is asking us, have you mourned over your offense to a holy God and how you have sinned against him? We need to understand and lament at how greatly we have offended our holy God, our creator. And the question is, do we literally mourn over our sin? You know, the tense of this word mourn is a present participle. And, and what that means is it's not a one-time event. It's an event that takes place in the future and it's a continuous action. So, so let me put these two words together because blessed is this adjectival noun. Those who are indwelt by God and find full satisfaction in him alone continually mourn over their sin because they are offending a holy God. And yet God gifts them an inheritance. Jesus is calling for us to deal with our sin thoroughly and mourn over our great offense to him. And this may seem small, but in the midst of this sentence that the Lord Jesus Christ is giving is this small word and it's shall. And I'm reading from the NASB. You, you all may have a different word, but, but this word shall is a future passive word. And why does that matter? It matters because it is a huge doctrine in our church. The Lord is promising us comfort, but the fact that it's future passive means you have nothing to do with that comfort that's given to you. The Lord Jesus Christ is promising you that if you are indwelt by God and find full satisfaction in him alone and you mourn over your great sin, the Lord Jesus Christ will gift you comfort. I don't know if Alex is in the room, but Alex had pointed this out in study that the root word of the Holy Spirit is the comforter is the same word that we see here that Jesus Christ uses. What does it mean to comfort? It means to call to one side, to admonish, to exhort, to console, to encourage, to strengthen, to uplift, to build up when you are indwelt by God and find full satisfaction in him alone, Jesus Christ promises that he will comfort you. So our question is, do we mourn over our fence to God? Congratulations, because Jesus Christ brings you comfort through forgiveness of your sins. Let's move quickly to verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Some of your translations may say meek. Blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. What does it mean to be gentle or meek? It means to be mild and humble, lowly, meek. The word is only used four times in the New Testament. And other than this one time, it's used three times by Matthew. And two of those, two of the remaining three times, it's used to describe our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and meek. 
and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew in chapter 21 outlines Jesus's, Jesus, Jesus this way um, prior to his death. He says, say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and meek mounted on a donkey even on a colt, a foal of the uh, beast of a burden. Pink says it this way, meekness is the opposite of self-will towards God and ill will towards men. Meekness is the opposite of self-will towards God and ill will towards men. Matthew Henry describes meekness this way, the meek are those who quietly submit themselves before God to his word, to his rod, who follow his directions and comply with his designs and are gentle towards men. Church, meekness does not mean weakness, but rather a quiet submission to a holy God with a willingness to obey his word. And as Jesus says a few verses later, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify our Lord and Savior who is in heaven. Live in such a submissive and obedient way to God that others may come to know Jesus Christ through your life. And let's not forget the reward, the blessing of the gentle and meek. They inherit the world. And you see that that small word shall is in there again. It's future passive, which means our Lord and Savior gifts that to us through an inheritance. You see, this is a counter-cultural message. Responsibility of leadership falls on the meek and humble both before God and men. Pink summarizes these first three this way. First, there is a poverty of spirit, a sense of our insufficiency and nothingness, a realization of our unworthiness and unprofitableness. Second, there is a mourning over our lost condition, sorrowing for the awfulness of our sin against God. Now we have a meekness as a byproduct of self-emptying and self-humiliation. Or in other words, there is a broken will and a receptive heart before God. Meekness is not only the antithesis of pride, but of stubbornness, fierceness, and vengefulness. To approach the throne of grace and salvation, we must first understand our evilness, our unworthiness, and helplessly fall at the feet of Jesus Christ. Second, we must understand and weep at our offense to a holy God who is the creator, the rule giver, the judge, the life sustainer, and the redeemer. And third, we must lament, repent, and seek forgiveness with a quiet submission towards God, and as Matthew Henry says, his word, his rod, his direction resulting in a gentleness towards men. I want you to leave here this morning, church, knowing if you are a believer that you are indwelt by God, and I want you and desire you to find full satisfaction in him alone. You see, this blessing is is given to us through an inheritance, and if you are not in Christ, or this is a new message, you need to understand that Jesus Christ did for you what you are unable to do for yourself through his sacrifice, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
And all you need to do is call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. To bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord God, for your word. For in it, you have gifted us redemption. Lord, we're thankful even for the various ways that you reach us through the work of your spirit in our life. Pray, Father, for those in this room who do not know you, that they would call on you even today. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who do know you, who your rich blessing has been poured out on us through the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we would leave here and dwell by God and finding full satisfaction in him alone and not believe the world's lies as John outlines the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. May we, Father God, leave here fully and wholly content because your son Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.